folks, and welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week, we'll sit down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching, both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The Daily Ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing... Mission Impossible, directed by Brian De Palma. Mission Impossible 2 by John Woo. Adaptation by Spike Jones. We have newly released No Hard Feelings by Gene Stubnitsky. And finally, Asteroid City, directed by Wes Anderson. It's going to be a great show, folks, so stay tuned and enjoy. Vincent Daly, how we doing, Tom. buddy? How's it going, Tom? Uh, it's going okay for me. I was, uh, I kind of like this week of movies. How was, yeah. how, how was it for you? Uh, it was good. Got some homework done for Mission Impossible. Um, really prep, enjoyed prep work. Yeah, really enjoyed adaptation uh, for one. Okay, uh, and. Honestly, uh, you know, happy I saw both of these uh, in theater releases. There's a lot of talk online. I mean, well, box office wise, I guess they're both kind of, you know, not doing too well. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of talk online, both for No Hard Feelings with like raunchy comedies coming back, and as well with Wes Anderson just being, being Wes, Wes Anderson. Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, I, I was I was happy to to watch all these. It's been a, an exhausting week. We have the the coming storm of franchises for the next three weeks so uh <laughs> i know they bled, they bled into this week yeah yeah i mean get real. ready folks it's, it's about to hit <laughs> but no like i said i like this week a lot I'm, I'm excited that we're doing the mission impossibles what started as a joke i don't know if we ever actually thought we would do them <laughs> this quickly into the podcast right we're on episode 89 which is exciting and yep. 100s around the corner but let's just jump back to it let's start sure, because, sure. yeah the reason why we're doing two yep because you know there's a lot. Foreshadowing. There may or may not be five next week or whatever it's coming <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so getting, getting ahead of it. What is it can. again? It's first we have Jones. Yep. Next then is we- Insidious, which I know you don't want horror, but it's a perfect five slot. So, And I've never Are seen there, any of them. You're saying that there's five Insidious movies? Oh, yeah. And then Red Door is the new, is the new one. Uh, no other big movie coming out, huh? <laughs> you're trying to... <laughs> <laughs> Try to reschedule it as much as it's possible. It's okay. It's all right. Anyway. And then we got Mission And then impossible. we got Mission Okay. All yeah. right. Well, all right. So let's start back in 1996, where it all started. This is Mission Impossible, Vin. How was this now? What? Old. Old film. Straight up old. 27 years? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I didn't realize it was 96 either. I mean, like, that I is... thought it was... I don't like know. Later I thought it was like that, 99 and then Mission Impossible 2 right after. I guess I it just feels weird Impossible 2 coming out 
four years later in the world that we live in today. Uh, yeah, I thought Mission Impossible 2 actually came out in like 98. Yeah. So I was yeah. surprised how late that came out. For sure. So where, you know, yearly releases are a normal thing today, uh, that just kind of felt weird for me. So Mission Impossible 1996. Uh, we got a movie with Big Dick De Palma, <laughs> a big time director we haven't seen for a while on the podcast. Brian De Palma is Probably a prime choice for a future director's study. Uh, we've covered 1987's The Untouchables with, of course, De Niro, and 1976 Carrie on previous episodes, so you can check that out if you want to, folks. You weren't the uh, biggest Carrie fan. I, I Surprisingly not. And I liked De Palma as a director, too. That was a very disappointing one. Is Considering that was supposed to be a, a good tentpole of that Stephen King episode. So <laughs> I, was, I was real disappointed. <laughs> I still remember how just weird the music was in Carrie. Oh, my God. It was like this Scooby-Doo. Uh, it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> but his stretch why it would be a director study folks is his stretch from 1980 to 1984 scarface included would be an awesome watch list and i think um between that and i'll give a sneak preview maybe a judd apatow writing study uh, would be two on the docket for oh, coming comedies months. in the future yeah. comedies in the future <laughs> everyone's saying it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah mission impossible is now of course a tentpole spy action franchise but back in 90, 1996 it was a simple remake of a 60s TV show by the same name. If anything, 1995's GoldenEye showed that an old, dusty brand like James Bond could be a modern hit. So maybe others could, too. And even though we have to wait four years for the sequel to this, you can feel the money-making potential right away, if only in Tom Cruise. <laughs> and Tom Cruise is still on fire right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you take, what, early or mid-80s mid to mm -hmm. now, he's still, like, one of the biggest. Yeah, same year, uh, you have Jerry Maguire. Uh, and, That's right, uh, yep. This is, yeah, uh, Tom Cruise is a huge, huge star by this point. We follow Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, uh, a master spy who takes his undercover work to impossible levels through near-perfect disguises and a razor-sharp awareness. These are really the character-defining features of Ethan. He's not a superhero. He's not a super spy. Maybe yet. I don't know. <laughs> Only two <laughs> under my belt. But uh, he, those are really the what makes him a character we follow. These, uh, his, his awareness to catch literally everything in a moment and then, of course, these iconic despises. We open up with IMF, Impossible Mission Force. Talk about the war Naming. There's some cheesiness to the whole thing, to the <laughs> yeah, whole franchise. Yeah. I actually tried watching a little bit of the 60s show, and I don't know. Not for me. I like old TV, but. Any major actor? from that or came out of that or no actually there was some drama in that uh the original cast i guess semi boycotted this film on release in 96 because oh, no one came back from the tv show and yeah uh, okay so a little bit of like a shatner when star trek uh, sure came back yeah absolutely absolutely so <laughs> all these these angry old tv actors <laughs> uh but at the height of this group's success imf um as a team we see them and we join in with them, uh, presumably where the TV show left off, or even if there's no connection to the final closing days of the TV show, it is still at the height of this group's uh, effectiveness. When the gang takes on a mission to secure a high-value asset list, it appears to be a job in the bag, but the last thing Ethan expected was the tables to be turned on him and soon finds himself on the run with no allies to help. And that's what we have kind of starting off with Mission Impossible 1. Tom, I... <laughs> I walked I walked into this thinking it was going to be some just some standard spy action 
my God, does this film need some life in it. It is a snoozer. Wow. It is not, I can't even, I almost didn't want to call it spy action. I mean, it's, it's not Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy slow, Ooh. but it's, it's, it's. <laughs> Not I, fast. It's not a fun movie. <laughs> that kind of that surprises me. I mean, I think it's all bits and pieces of this movie, yeah. but I'm much more familiar with the newer ones. Sure, like even like three on. Absolutely, I think that's is the case your, for a lot of is people. Is this your first time watching, or maybe like a long years and I years ago? I think it has to be, and I, mainly because my memory of this. I thought it was Mission Impossible 1. It turns out my memory of this is Mission Impossible 2. Ah. So. <laughs> um, wow, okay. So not uh, it's an hour and 50 minutes, but slow, huh? Yeah, it, it's a little brooding. It's not very fun. Uh, it is very spy oriented, which is which is good. But even the action, it's just like wow. There was there was just some really lacking elements here. Even the heist aspect, just some lacking elements. Um, I just got very excited that we're doing all seven of these. Oh, like yeah. I like the idea. I'm excited about it now. Sure, because I would love to go through the steps and also just like here's when it turns into this. Yes. Here when it turns into this. Absolutely. This is a film where now we get. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. If we're starting like this, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it made me scratch my head. Um, because again, like you, I know what this franchise has become, you know, fallout forward and whatnot. This movie is in desperate need of a strong villain or a much stronger inciting incident uh, to make us care, basically. Uh, I mean, it's just a perfect example in the start of the film that there's something there when the tables are turned on Ethan, but just, man, it just plays out so bland. All of the film plays out very bland, even when tense moments come along they are without context to make it feel real for us. Stakes of the plot are communicated, but not felt. Hmm. Uh, the mystery list of names uh, that is the MacGuffin of the film, and even the betrayal that put Ethan on his heels, it all just feels extremely weak. In fact, uh, weak enough to probably skip this, even in a franchise deep dive for everyone, anyone interested. Really? Yeah. You can say I, skip number one? I really do think so. Uh, I mean, despite maybe an introduction to Ethan Hunt's boy, do they throw it out in two? He's a <laughs> he's a whole other beast in two. So I don't know. I, I think this is a an odd case where you know I'm usually a fan. First ones usually the right, best. right. This not the case. I'm going to put here. a caveat in there for you. Okay, we'll pencil this in. Yep. Won't we use permanent marker because <laughs> after you watch all seven, yes, maybe something happens in six, and you're just like, oh. maybe you need to watch number one now. <laughs> right, right. Series there you go. I'll go. <laughs> I got yeah. you back. Right, right. 1996, like we talked about, a big year for Tom Cruise. Both this and Jerry Maguire came out. Uh, and on a positive note, Ethan Hunt as a character is cemented from the very start. His determination the spy skill set being consistent for the whole franchise you know we also get some cool additions to the crew uh, Jean Reno uh, two years after his role in The Professional a must watch on the website yes sir Ving Rhames of course two years after his peak role as Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction Ring Rames also becomes a series regular as well. So that would be the one inclusion of maybe seeing the history of the crew. If yeah. you really love that, <laughs> you know, that'd be <laughs> slight uh, where to watch this. But uh, the flavor of the spy action is a lot of gadget work here in line with just what the spy action was in the 90s camera glasses, lock melting gum print scanners and of course the iconic rubber disguise mask which what surprised me the most is we don't see the tech behind it 
again, just going it, off a of fallout in my in my mind, uh-huh. we see like he's got to do like a 3D scan of the dude's face in the bathroom. Right. There's no like fundamental explain explanation of the tech, which I don't necessarily need, but I just figured that was a given, honestly. That's funny. It just yeah. it's just there. It's just part of it. Yeah. He's just got a bunch of really good masks. <laughs> Apparently, it's one of the more <laughs> like true non-crazy things that mm. is actually possible. Like the CIA for oh, decades really? and decades have actually had extremely good mask work. Interesting, interesting. Anyway, yeah, you who know, really you knows? Know, you put on some sunglasses. You know. <laughs> uh, Danny Elfman composes here, uh, bringing borderline absurd amount of bongos to the <laughs> to the <laughs> to the uh, arrangement um, and just the percussion work is just huge in this it's uh it's it's a fun score uh but i gotta give a shout out to one of my favorite composers lalo chiffrin uh who created the iconic theme back in the 60s which is used all over this film in the original style i bring it up specifically for this one is because at least for what i saw it too and i'm assuming as we move into more and more modern renditions of this uh we don't get this original arrangement of this uh, of the, the of that theme and here it was on great display and yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'll, I'll wait until maybe we go back to like Dirty Harry or something to really sing Lalo Schifrin's, uh praises. But uh, hmm. just, just such a great theme, uh, the Mission Impossible yeah. theme. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. So good. So immediately makes you feel like a spy, you know, uh, and all those bongos playing in the background. Yeah, it's good. I have to say, it, it's. I don't know. I don't know if it's in my top five. No. Okay. It's just. Something about all the Mission Impossibles just has a silliness to it. Mm. I think the silly version <laughs> of Bond. Oh, I, I, here I we mean, go. I know, I know. The feud begins. <laughs> seven comments, one yeah. out of seven, I, have I, been ta- I, I, tackled. <laughs> I understand silly Bond is awesome powers. but mm. And I even think the way Mission Impossible develops itself, mm-hmm. it, it, they don't do a lot of copycat stuff. I think they're... Well, they sometimes do, but they're mm-hmm. always trying to be better and everything like yeah. that. They're not just taken from the pit. <laughs> I, and in some ways, Bond might have even pulled a little bit from the later Mission Impossibles or John Wick or Jason Bourne. Sure, the way sure, absolutely. To get that gritty or Craig. Especially with Bourne, absolutely. Right, so it's not like they're not serious films or anything like that, but something about it, they're just, it's a little bit more jokey or just way too <laughs> about friends or something. And it just... <laughs> And I get that in the score. I think the score has... A playfulness to it. Yes, that I don't really like. Okay, fair enough. But fair I like enough. the score of just saying, eh, top five. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's my and, two and cents. I, I agree with you as a playfulness or, or you know, um, not family-oriented. You are right, though. It is about camaraderie among, like, the spy crew a little bit. Yeah, w- like, when I watch the Bond <laughs> and all of a sudden they throw in that, mm-hmm. that Bond theme or something like that, you get excited. You yeah. kind of get like, oh, okay, this is getting yeah. really cool. Yeah. The Mission Impossible stuff, I, that's not my reaction. You know what I mean? I just Fair kind of enough. laugh almost. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. It's just too playful. I no. don't know. It's <laughs> Anyway, I will do my best to make this all about Mission Impossible. No, I want a Bond comment. But I really need to watch one. You need to call me out. No. You need to put me on a very short leash. But that's that's where I am excited for the... Um... Uh, for the the franchise deep dive on it because I know, but no one needs that. No one needs. 
25 minute review it's not like bond <laughs> well speaking of I'll, I'll wrap up here uh folks sorry to say even with all the production talent behind it this film was lacking in identity it was lacking in its own distinction uh in 96 and i think even today there's very little personality the stakes are not communicated well in the plot and possibly this even fails to be a love letter to the original if indicated by you know that original cast getting a little the word was despised this rendition so (laughs) overall i was not too impressed and like i said i'm thinking this might be even a pass with the series itself we're gonna go ahead and give mission impossible 1996 a 44 wow in the 40s yeah i I didn't think it was that good wow okay and like i said i you know i can get behind a a lot of the production talent on this one it just it was not the magic wasn't there for an action film or, you know, Mission Impossible otherwise. This is a very important number here. 44. Yeah. I mean, this is starting off the Mission Impossible with 44. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I think it's I think it's maybe an important thing, too. Maybe we can start this now with all these Mission Impossibles sure. just afterwards. How do you like this rendition of Tom Cruise? This glasses Tom Cruise. Oh. And young short hair. Because in two, we have long hair Tom Cruise. Right. Yes. You know? He definitely goes through an evolution. <laughs> uh, this Tom Cruise, that that's what I mean. It's kind of lacking in identity a little bit. Okay. Uh, if anything, in two, he's a douchebag, but it, it, works. it, it, it kind of works in, in the craziness of the movie. Okay. So, okay. Uh, we'll see. We'll see as, as the series goes on, the evolution of Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump right to it then. Like you said, four years later, this is the year 2000. This is Mission Impossible 2. Same deal, they're all PG-13. This is a little, slightly over two hours. Hmm. Let's get into it right away. How are we back with this big blockbuster? Uh, and a big blockbuster it is. I mean, you look at the the poster on this thing, it's like summer. It just says summer. It doesn't even give uh, a, a date. It's just all of summer was Mission Impossible well. 2. Also, I love that this is officially called MI2. Yeah, it's, MI2. Yeah. But <laughs> it's kind of like a too fast, too furious situation here. Folks, it's a little mildly dis- disappointing that this is the first John Woo film that we have to cover on the podcast. A true legend in Hong Kong cinema, and without a doubt, a godfather of gung fu action in a subgenre. He may have some really bad movies under his name, uh, but this man is a proper action director. And this made a super interesting match for the franchise, not only for rekindling a sequel with a lot of energy after four years in hiatus, but also to show the energy these movies needed to distinguish themselves in the spy action landscape to make their own identity. So as silly as this movie was in times, and almost so bad as good, I was much more positive on this than I was the first one. Okay. And wow, is this just very 2000s. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, our opening scene has Oakley sunglasses followed by a Limp Biscuit remix of the theme. I mean, need I say more, folks? <laughs> this is outrageous. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he's free climbing a mountain. Yes. Just a sheer cliff face. Was that what you thought was in number one? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought so. <laughs> uh, in, the, in the recesses of my of seeing this as a child. Yep. Uh, this movie has a lot of so bad it's good vibes, uh, but the camp of the whole concept has been clocked up. It's fun. It's sexy, but not too far from that Fast and Furious vibe and how ridiculous things get sometimes. Sure. Uh, so I think maybe take a an ounce 
of seriousness out of the whole idea of Mission Impossible and amp up the action, and that's what you get in two, and I think in a good way. Well, Again, especially if the action was missing in the first one. Yeah, yeah, and, and Wu's killing it as far as action yeah. goes. Okay, cool. Ethan Hunt is riding solo until he has to pull a new team together to stop a bioweapon called Chimera being released on the public. We get a pretty significant romance with femme fatale Nia Hall, which keeps Ethan in the game for more than just the mission. Uh, his opposition is cut from the same cloth, however, being a super spy gone rogue and knowing all of Ethan's tricks, which unfortunately I think that's going to be a lot of the opposition of uh, these films. They're always going to be... A spy gone bad, basically. <laughs> this has so much better of an opener in the plot. Really makes a difference. We see a fun introduction to our villain, uh, a bioweapon MacGuffin amping up the stakes a lot more than just like a list of names. And what do you know? Our villain uses the same disguise text as Ethan. This is a fun conflict uh, for an action film and how the film actually uses... Some little bit of misdirection of who's in a disguise and who's not in a disguise. Mm -hmm. It falls through for the entire film. This gives the film buy-in time and gives the plot some runway. Something wholly missing from the first film. Uh, there was no engagement with the plot in the first film. It doesn't help this movie too much because, you know, the first hour or so is dedicated to recon and this romance subplot. But at least it sets the stage and shows us the stakes instead of telling us the stakes. That first film, it was all prescription. They were all just like, oh, this means a lot. You better, you better understand this means a lot. <laughs> this, you feel it a lot more. Um, you feel it in the opposition and even just, you know, again, this bioweapon. It just, it's, it's better. It's more, yeah, yeah. It's bigger. It's an amped up sequel. I mean, and maybe not too surprising that it's a sequel. And maybe one, I don't know, I was surprised that it kind of took a back seat, some of the action. But at the same time, if it is coming off a 60s show, mm -hmm. what are we going off of here? Maybe right. that was action for the show. D De Palma's a super old director, too. Right, yeah. So him coming Maybe to this... it does kind of make sense Yeah, a bit. yeah. Uh, and that's why I, I, give, I gave it, at least in watching it, some, some breathing room to say, like, all right, is this doing right by the original right. show? Is this a fan film, you know, in some ways? Now, this doesn't... You wouldn't say this is, like, 2 doesn't feel like a complete rebranding. I think it we, does. Yeah. It's that big of a difference? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Absolutely. If only for Wu's crazy action style. I mean, <laughs> Ethan Hunt is a kung fu legend in this. Like, he is Bruce <laughs> Lee in this. Uh, they put him on wire foo. Um, obviously, a classic Hong Kong technique for action films. Uh, so yeah, it, it it is it does really feel like something else. Adding to that two thousandness of the movie is an absolute array of digital effects and editing choices, which feel right in line for Wu's directing at the time. Uh, I'm looking at you face off, uh, but uh, across the board, they don't look that great. I'll tell you what does look great though are the gunfights. Wu's expertise in filming shootouts is on great display here. The final fight is completely kung fu and fantastic. All over this movie, Tom Cruise is pulling off serious wire work to do flips mm. and, <laughs> and and somersaults and all this stuff. And it helps, again, make sure this film has its own identity. Uh, we even get the iconic doves and birds flying out for each of the uh, fight sequences, uh, which, again, flirts a line with so bad it's good, but... 
Man, I I, I I was in love with it. it Can you go it, through that a little bit? Uh, so uh, John Woo always has in you know in his shootouts uh, a motif of putting doves everywhere. You see like this... people running and then them scattering. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. The doves coming out. If anything, a lot of those <laughs> interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, I, know. <laughs> I don't know why we would do it, but it, it looks great. It's it's silly. But it's it's just how I would give credit to the 80s-ness of an 80s action film. Sure. These doves, they're so 2000s. It's, it's still great to, to see, and it, it makes for really awesome sequences as far as actions go. Okay, I love it. These doves, I'm pretty sure, comes from like a hard-boiled or, or older kind of kung fu films. And maybe, uh, folks at home, if you're familiar with this trope of doves in action scenes <laughs> flying out in slow motion, probably comes from like a, not a scary movie, but like one of those spoof movies. Yeah. Uh, spoofing, you know, the trends at the time, you know, especially coming out in the 2000s. Tom Cruise is creeping up the unbearable scale on this one. Oh, okay, yeah, all right. Yeah. Uh, the fact that our first scene is him free climbing is just really excessive. He's excessive all over this. <laughs> He's all over this. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was largely inoffens- inoffensive for the first one, but it was also just adding to that lackluster aspect. So while it might be more of a douchebag here, much like the clocked up campiness, I think it works slightly better. Yeah, I'll put a pin in it for now until I see... Him kind of become the modern Ethan Hunt that we get basically yeah. post Rogue Nation four, I think it is post three. I feel right. like we get re- yes yeah. rebranded starting with four. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he's you know more of a leader than just a this like you know cocky guy that's <laughs> a super spy and on his own. Yeah, because so. I don't really think he's supposed to be douche in the newer ones. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And especially with him growing older, that's how the brand is going to evolve, and uh, and um, you know uh, the the stories are going to evolve. And Tom as Cruise well. is trying to live forever, man. <laughs> He really is. I think um, more so than anything, this is, like the first one, a little bit of an anomaly in the franchise itself. And, uh, you know, it's that long hair. I don't think he has that. He rocks that long hair. But this is its... He's well, I met own... with Tom Hanks the other week. Uh, oh, really? Keep the... Well, we, we were talking about uh, in the freaking Da Vinci Code. Oh. It's his worst, it's the worst Tom, Tom Hanks haircut. These long-haired hippies out of here. With Tom Cruise, yeah. I don't like long-haired Tom Cruise as much. He is like... Oakley sunglasses, two thousand, like personified in a human yeah, being. Yeah, yeah, uh, that that is that is that is Cruz here. I would say this film has some serious razzle dazzle. Uh, the ending action sequence is downright awesome. There is a motorcycle sequence that brought a smile to my face the whole time, and again, that end fight sequence being all hand to hand fight choreography was really great to see. It was good okay. to see even apart from my leanings and respecting Wu's directing style. And clearly, I mean, the type of kicks that Tom Cruise does, he clearly has a Asian fight choreographer behind him. Damn I mean, right. Damn th- straight. Th- this guy is not The man <laughs> likes up. to do it right. The man <laughs> yeah. likes to do it right, man. Yeah, this, this guy is not coming up with that himself. So, <laughs> uh, But that's exactly why we call it Razzle Dazzle, because it makes you forget that there was nearly a whole hour without action, no less focused on a, a pointless romance here. I think the shift from spy action to action film with spy wrappings is an important evolution for the franchise. I would just note for 
viewers and folks at home that you may give this one a shot, especially in going through the franchise, viewer beware of that 2000s-ness, just like I would note for an 80s film oozing its own time period. Uh, we're going to go ahead and give MI2 a 60 on the dot. Okay, 60. Big big jump. Yep. Uh, and I can only expect the action to go up from here. Now that we kind of have set the table mm-hmm. and we kind of know where we're at now. Yep. Yep. One thing that we can also talk about after each one, is there, are we in the era of there's still one big stunt that Tom Cruise has to, has to mm-hmm. do? Like I would say with this one, it's a climbing. Sure. I would say there's, there's, I don't know, it, it, it's it's how much I like action and, and interesting action choreography. I would say the motorcycle sequence at the end okay. is a big stunt. I think this had multiple stunts. Okay, because you know how it is now. Everyone it's wants so to watch. Tr- yeah. If I really had to boil it down, you are right, though, that the, the, the cliffhanging or the, right? the free climbing is the big stunt. Anything with uh, the first one that stands out crazy? Mm, there's a train sequence, but it's got some bad CGI. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it should note, by the way, so this, I mean, 2000, this had a budget of $125 million, yeah. which is a lot. Oh, sure. And then even in 1996, the first one had a budget of $80 million, mm. which I thought was, a, that's a lot, yeah. in my yeah. opinion. Very financially successful as well. Mm. But okay, so 44 for Mission Impossible and 60 for MI2. So I like this. We're trending up. 60, uh, and I can't again. Wait for th- I cannot wait for three. That's <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite lines of all movies. Oh, I, really? Mm-hmm. Really? Okay. And JJ. Yeah, that's true. I'm excited to uh, go back to JJ's directing, which, of course, has been a, a minute. It's there. birthday today. Oh, really? Yeah. Look at that. To the newsletter. Look at that. Uh, <laughs> all right, Finn, let's take a huge jump now, uh, all the way to 2002, but really, it's a big jump in type of movie. <laughs> yeah. This is a Spike Jones film, which we don't have a lot of experience as far as daily ratings is concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film is Adaptation. Curious to know why this week Adaptation's on the list. And for Spike Jones, how did you like it? Yeah, so uh, folks, I'm diving back into this uncomfortable zone for my reviews, especially while I have the bandwidth for it in, in the five movie slot. Uh, and back with Charlie Kaufman writing the script here. Uh, and boy, oh boy, did I pick a doozy here. Uh, <laughs> in case you didn't hear, in our Anomalisa review, I explained that his projects are a bit intimidating for me, mostly because I don't care for some of the peak works, or at least the works that are most critically praised. But uh, Anomalisa was great. So giving him more shots and tackling you know, some of the most critically praised films is the challenge that I want to kind of set for myself. And that's why you know, Adaptation kind of made it on this week. I watched this with my brother-in-law, John. Okay. Uh, and, wow, is challenge the word here? Because, um, <laughs> I mean, if there wasn't enough of an uphill battle, now we have <laughs> Nick Cage thrown into the mix, <laughs> playing two roles. Playing two roles. <laughs> that, I'll tell you what, that is the <laughs> biggest... Most potent recipe right. for a challenging film. Right. Kaufman writing, yep. Spike Jones directing, <laughs> yep, yep. Nick Cage went into two roles. Two roles. <laughs> Very prominent roles. So, okay, all right. Uh, largely, I can call this movie challenging because of how meta uh, the story is. As a viewer, you really have to be engaged with what plays out on screen, but also be aware of some real life Hollywood aspects. I wouldn't call it a no go if you don't know these real life Hollywood aspects, but. Uh, that's what I can kind of do as a pre-prep and hopefully through this review as well, 
put some training wheels on this because this is a really great movie. Um, okay. Director Spike Jones is a good sign, though. Uh, this is only one of four feature films he has helmed. Granted, he is tied to being John Malkovich, the one of the Kaufman scripts that I don't really like, but it's actually something that we see behind-the-scenes footage of in this, um, mm. of being John Malkovich in this film. So that's where this kind of meta element is Definitely, coming Definitely, yeah. And 2013's Her is the other end of that spectrum, uh, a seriously great movie and continues to be increasingly more valid as science fiction predicting the future uh, with uh, kind of these parasocial relationships with technology. So I like Spike Jones a lot. He just doesn't have much uh, as far as features films go. Yeah, different dude for sure. Yeah. Tom, holy shit. If there was ever a movie to solve my specific problem with Kaufman's writing. Okay. It was this one. I mean, again, not a lot big use case, but <laughs> this was almost made. In adaptation, we follow Charlie Kaufman, played by Nick Cage, who is deeply struggling with a uh, with adapting a stream, screenplay from a book that is going to be made into a movie. And I mean deeply struggling. <laughs> we watch Nick Cage play Charlie Kaufman, and I had my concerns, but it really works. If you watch the trailer or look up this film in any way, it might not phase you, but I'm telling you, the movie is brilliant. Um, the story is multi-layered in its kind of juggling act. We see Charlie Kaufman's life playing out while he's trying to adapt the real-life novel, The Orchid Thief, a real novel that you can pick up. Hmm. The movie then acts as an adaptation of the period in Kaufman's life, where he struggles with the screenplay and meaning in his life. I mean, he kind of goes through this kind of breakdown, this existential breakdown of what his life means. We then see in flashbacks the writing process of the book, The Orchid Thief. Meryl Streep plays the author Susan Orlean in adapting the real-life Orchid Thief played by Chris Cooper, who got the Oscar for this. And best of all, in itself, this movie is an adaption of The Orchid Thief. It is like so many many layers. layers. (laughs) So many layers. I mean... Talk about a demanding movie. Like, you really got to be engaged with this thing. And that's where, uh, you know, to to make sure that experience is leveled out and people can appreciate the good in this movie, yeah. I kind of want to lay out how many layers there is to this movie being called adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> it's like four layers, four or five layers of adapting. Uh, and is really brilliant. I love this movie. Wow, okay. Yeah, I, I love this movie. So well executed, so unique. We'll talk about, with Asteroid City, kind of um, a, a meta story. This 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 film is just so well implemented and not do, doesn't drive you away from it with its, with its right. meta-ness. That's the biggest thing. Were you finding yourself frustrated with it? No. Uh, I think you were just enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, now, granted, I was really, like, tuned in, and I was trying to, you know, I knew this was going to be a challenging movie. Yeah. Uh, and that's how, again, uh, that's I would give those training wheels to, to folks at home listening. But um, why I thought this was so brilliant is that I felt the way the premise unfolds is so engaging uh, because we really only tackle... Kaufman's crisis and uh, Susan Orlean's Meryl Streep's uh, kind of writing process of when she's first writing the book. So you're dealing with those two layers, but then as it unfolds, you see that the word adaptation is the entire backbone of the film, is the skeleton of the film as a concept. And just 
man, it it, it can definitely be confusing at times, but man, it was just right. so it, it, entertaining it, it de- to watch. It demands your attention. Yep. And keen maybe keen eye, but really just pay t- <laughs> really just pay attention and yep. actually follow follow the story. It's not something you can just put on in the background. Exactly. And exactly. Cha- I can only imagine how challenging it is to make that work. Honestly, <laughs> right. as a director, as a writer to make it work, the fact yep. that it comes together really yep. well, two two Nick Cages. Sometimes those movies when you step away and you say, Well, maybe I should watch it again. Or maybe on a second watch, I'll even like it even more. Mm. Those are gems. Yeah. Those are gems when you can watch a movie again and actually get more from it or something like that as well. Absolutely. Uh, returning to it and finding more. That It's, it's great. Absolutely. And, and, and the fact that the film exists in this kind of, like, this fluid space that... Kaufman is trying to adapt this book. The movie serves as that adaptation. It's adapting his life. It's adapting the author's life. It's adapting the subject of the book's life. I mean, it's 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 next level. I mean, I was I a lot was of juggling. Really, I mean, again, it's impressive yeah. that it works. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with this. And I think on that note, it's on the back of performances. Uh, mm, okay. This whole thing works because of performances because it's it, these characters are real. They feel it feels like good writing because mm-hmm. the characters are real. Off the bat, uh, you know. I was really worried about this being a puff piece, um, especially for my, you know, me being on the on the outs with Kaufman's writing to begin with. But, you know, uh, folks, you can feel my eyes rolling when I realized this was a Kaufman biopic written by Kaufman himself. But what saved it, I think, was a great performance by Nick Cage, mainly because it solves any criticism of this being a puff piece for Kaufman. The depiction through Cage's performance is just so unbelievably unflattering (laughs) and so genuinely pathetic that it just absolved any feeling of this feeding Kaufman's ego. Like, this is not an ego piece. Like... (laughs) (laughs) There's no way that he got enjoyment out of this portrayal by Nick Cage. He's, he's, you know, really doing a number on him, like almost to the point of embarrassment. Um, Also, this is quite possibly my favorite Nick Cage performance. I would say the only thing that comes to mind is Leaving Las Vegas, where he plays the alcoholic. Oh, okay. Um, But like as far as like performances for Nick Cage, no less that he's playing two guys. I mean, wow. It would, yeah, it would be good to return to some. Yeah. Like, like Raising Arizona comes sure. to mind, but sure. I haven't watched that in years. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, he, he got the nom. Yeah. Like you said, Best Supporting Actor went to Chris Cooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got, Nick Cage got Leading Role mm-hmm. nominee. Meryl Streep got Supporting Role nominee. Yep. And then, of course, Kaufman got uh, nominated for Screenplay. Yep, yep. Or Adapted Screenplay, whatever, yeah. Absolutely. So, when it comes to, um, you know, this, this being a juggling act, Cage plays both Charlie and his twin brother in the story, Donald. Two cages in one film. So, I mean, Nick Cage fans, I mean, they rush to this. I mean, this is this is this is your movie. It's 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 about as much cage that's ever been put on one film. So most shockingly is that it looks pretty great. Most scenes are solved practically with only one cage ever being on screen at once. You know, it's not like I was expecting a good special effects out of this film, but I found myself rarely able to catch any moment that it looked rough when they're both on screen, sure. which is clearly done through probably a mask and then a digital editing uh, to uh, put Cage's actual face on it. But I just appreciated that it, you know, a lot of scenes were just solved practically, not mind blowing, yeah. uh, you know, as far as how what what tricks they would have to do, but uh, refreshing in the in the world of uh, de aging process and you know and and CGI dead people 
people and everything like that. So it's important to note, though, that as meta as this film gets, uh, it is, you know, within that real film industry specifically, it's still fiction. Kaufman does not have a brother for reference. Meryl Streep is another example of this. She is truly great in this role, playing the real author, Susan Orlean. But I'm pretty sure the film isn't going after any kind of biographical portrayal of mm-hmm. Susan Orlean. There were plenty of critical nominations for this film as we just went through. But uh, the sole Oscar win goes to Chris Cooper for Best Supporting. And him being the subject of The Orchid Thief is one of the best parts about the film. If anything, the flashbacks when we snap back to Meryl Streep and, and, and Chris Cooper... Those are the normal points, because it's just an author following a guy as the subject of her novel. And those, I feel, again, that that's where, as wild as this premise is, mm-hmm. gave us a chance to be like, okay, uh, solid ground. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Get your bearings, bit of yep. a life raft. Exactly. That Not only that, on to. two actors killing it, uh, uh, an interesting story around this weird character of the Orchid Thief. Uh, you know, his role in the story is the spark of inspiration that all these writers are having difficulty adapting. So I, I, I just really enjoyed those moments in the film because it played out just like a good drama, period. Yeah. But then was in all of this, all this orchestration of the story. I kind of like that. I like that. Chris Cooper, if that doesn't... It, it's a name I don't think many people know. Yeah. The moment you see the face, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. He plays, if, uh, speaking of Jason Bourne, he's in the Bourne movies as some uh, kind of the, the chief, the CIA chief okay. in one or two of them, I believe. He's also tries to bring Bourne in. Uh, he's also in The Patriot. He plays one of the generals that's kind of like on Mel Gibson's side mm, in The Patriot. Mm. And then he's also in a ton of other things. Yeah, yeah. He's just kind of that guy. When you see him, he's like, oh, that guy. Yeah. But that's cool that he's – that's cool. I mean, he got the win. I know, yeah. Uh, and, and, a, and a heavy year as well uh, in 2002. Uh, a lot of competition in 2002. Uh, lastly, a quick shout out to uh, Brian Cox uh, from the recently wrapped up Succession, who uh, has a brief but impactful role as this writing teacher guru in the story, and he, he's just phenomenal. He's just so good. He's good. He's yeah. great and born. He's great and born too. Yep. Because uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the the reason why this film was so great can be credited to the writing itself. Puff piece or not, however you see it for Kaufman. I mean, he really killed it here. Um, the dialogue feels so good because these characters feel real as possible. And that's because they are real. Flashback to our episode two weeks ago. And this is a movie I actually like that's about movies. And we get another uh, with a new release slot this week with Mm -hmm. Asteroid City. So, uh, Tom, this was the first movie I watched this week, and it was also the last. Hey! Uh, Called it. Called it in the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I could not shake it, and I need to see it again. And I I think you know what that means. We're going to go ahead and give Adaptation 2002 an 85. Whoa! Whoa! Yeah. Big boy alert. alert. Absolute big boy alert. I'm telling you. This first of the year? On uh, for new or old film? I'm gonna say yes. How about know. that? Because it means more than eighty five percent for yeah. adaptation. Yeah, it was. It was you, against. You ticked it into the months. Wow. Yeah, against all expectation. Believe me, I was kind of going in thinking I was gonna hate this movie, but man, was it like no other? Wow. Uh, it is a. It is a very that very is special fantastic. film. What am I saying? We did Ferris Bueller this year. Oh, anyway, yeah, right, anyway. Right. That, that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> Wow, okay. And would you also say people people yeah. are going to come away with 
saying, I need to watch this again. Like, do you think it's going to be a common thing? I think so. I think so. Just how I couldn't shake it. I was pretty, I, I knew it was somewhere in the 80s because, again, it was just, it was so unique and the execution was was right on. There wasn't anything about this film that I said, okay, not only is this a very lofty concept, but there's there's problems in that it, it doesn't achieve uh, its concept well. It doesn't execute upon it well. How fast into the movie did you realize this is something special? Uh, actually, John can attest to this. As soon as I realized that we were like three le- layers deep on the concept of an adaptation, <laughs> I was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> and not in a bad way, which is huge. Yeah. How did brother-in-law John like it? Uh, <laughs> he, he loved it. This was on okay. a, 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 a now a growing list of movies that we're chipping away from. Love it. Just Perfect. so happens that we're tackling a lot of Kaufman. So. Uh, well, I'm so glad that you watched it then and, yeah. and are giving Kaufman a try. Yeah, I had to. starting to get it a little bit. Huh? I guess so. <laughs> I guess, and you know that's that's why I wanted to. You know that's the heart of why I want to watch these movies, wow. even if I came away with like. You know, opinion that I mean, this film is very praised online as the it Oscar is, nominations. You know, yeah, you know, for sure. So I, I mean, if anything, what's challenging there is maybe putting myself in the line of fire and saying, "Hey, I, I don't agree with people on this one. I don't think it's that great." I'm it's so immensely happy that I did, you know, get it entirely, and I felt that it was so great. Wow. So. Okay, folks, don't sleep on it. It is adaptation. It deserves the praise. It's Tunic an cages. And Nothing else got it. Yes. <laughs> and I've been making a point to say almost every week, just like for people who are new coming to the podcast because mm. we can see that there are definitely people new every week coming uh, 85 anything at 85 or above we consider this to be a must watch film and it, it hits so good mm-hmm. it's hitting enough marks for enough audience members that everyone basically should see this yep, yep. Uh, for a whole slew of different reasons so again he ticked it, 85 is a big deal for others 85 is not a big deal. Sure. 85 on Rotten Tomatoes, nothing special. For <laughs> right. us, very special. Yep, we absolutely. Actually, you know, we like to use the range of the numbers. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I, I'm I'm happy I watched it yeah. uh, and uh, got out of my comfort zone a little bit. And, I mean, it's it's a wild movie, but hopefully the, you know, like I said, in the, the effort of training wheels on such a wild concept, hopefully, you know, others that, you know, folks at home, if you decide to watch this, uh, go in uh, with an open mind and, and, and see where this wild ride takes you. It's, it's, it's a really, really unique and interesting film. Freaking love it. Anytime we get a daily double watch from <laughs> yeah. you. That's why I said writing's big, on the board. <laughs> yeah, big, it's, it's just right away. That's your big boy alert. Yeah. yeah. Uh, awesome. <laughs> well, well, let's go ahead and go into the producer segment then. After coming off of a must-watch film, Vin, this is a very big deal here. <laughs> so, okay. All right, folks. So we do have a producer this week. Been a little dry around here but that's all right you know <laughs> yeah we see dry spell. we see more and more people every week coming and, and checking us out so that of course is a big deal that's what we really love to see but hey our good old friend producer sean is back this Ooh. week Vin. sean's coming in with a uh, ten dollar donation well, thank and, you so much. And he wrote a note along with it he goes thanks for the shout out on last week's show when talking about cgi cgi is the worst <laughs> it has ruined the movie industry and takes people out of the experience I get there is a need in some instances, but less is more. Let's bring practical effects back. That's the creativity and the movie magic we grew up loving. Uh, do you have a recommendation on best CGI in a movie? Ooh. We have to really set some, so, some thought. Yeah. Like all time? Mm, yeah. I, I mean, know. I don't want to say that there's an obvious, you know, like if, if you 
Yeah, top of your head, I don't know. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, oh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sean also writes <laughs> Any chance he gets to bring Well you keep on thinking race. about it He goes also <laughs> want to add that I've watched more animated films This year than I have in the past 10 years Wow Thanks for the recommendations By the way he goes none of them were Pixar <laughs> That's great That's awesome to hear though uh, I'm, I'm super happy And uh, even, even like what we did with covering Maybe not like traditionally like anime as as a secondary yeah. to animation on on the Spider Man episode. Um, I, I was happy to explore weird animation and like kind of uh, once yeah, and done animation. Definitely. So. And it's funny because Pixar. I mean, we've really been taking our eyes out on Pixar lately. <laughs> yeah. I think for good reason. But it's also kind of opened our eyes to some other studios and yeah. other stuff going on because yeah. it is everywhere. Uh, I mean, come on. We even like the second Piss, Puss in Boots movie. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And even though every time I go to say it, I call it Piss in Boots. It was actually pretty good. <laughs> uh, but, Sean, thank you so much for being a producer this week. You're an executive producer of Episode 89. You continue to produce the Daily Ratings. We thank you all so much. Again, folks, if you're new kind of to the Daily Ratings, <clears throat> this is how we do things. Um, we don't uh, really – the show's not supported by advertisers. You know, we're not just going to sit here and pitch ads to you. This show is supported and produced literally by you. If you listen and want to become a producer, you go to thedailyratings.com, you go to the donations tab, and then you give us monetary support. We also call it the value for value system. Look at Sean. He watched more animated films this mm. year than he has in the past 10. He's Proof getting concept. Right. He's getting value from the podcast and he's also enjoying it he's having mm-hmm. a good time as well mm-hmm. so that's value in his pocket he's going to go ahead and give some value in our pocket and that's through monetary support and hey when you write in um when you donate you can write in a note just like sean is and we're going to read it here on air you yeah know, if you're going to take time to give us some cash to produce we're gonna we're gonna you know take the time to write what you have to say absolutely and it could be something like sean said it could be questions it could be critiques it could be love hate it doesn't matter again it's at dailyratings.com you go to the donations tab and you become a producer you can show us your show us the value that you're getting it's kind of the way we're doing things numbers are going up and up one of the most important things you can do right now is to get our name out there whether you're talking to your friends or family members anybody talking behind you waiting for the line in the grocery store and the movies come up hey give us a little bit of shout <laughs> you hear people bitching about Rotten Tomatoes, that's where we want to be. That's, that's our spot. <laughs> we want to be in the conversation, and we want you to help us kind of get in the conversation. If you're interested in the newsletter that comes out every Tuesday morning, you head down to the bottom of the page, or the, the bottom of any page of the website, mm-hmm. put in your info, and you're good to go there. So uh, that's enough for that. Sean, thanks a lot. And Vin, let's keep things going. Okay. We have our In Theaters Now newly released films. Uh, this is No Hard Feelings. This is directed by Gene Stupninsky. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My this, note is not going to bother with the last name. <laughs> uh, we kind of talked about it before. This is getting a lot of attention. One for the Ron Sheen comedies. Yep, is it coming yep. back? Also, it's getting attention for some of just like underage stuff. It's it's okay. Older person of, of 10 or 15 oh, years right. going after kind of young yeah. kid. <laughs> is it okay just because it's Jennifer Lawrence? It's a, it's a, it's a right, that girl going on a boy, not a boy to a girl. Right. Whatever. It's in the news. But most of all, Vin, how did you like no hard feelings. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, Tom. This is yet another one of those movies that you wouldn't catch me dead seeing. So, <laughs> I disagree. No, I don't. Usually, usually, I would agree with you on like not wanting to see a film. This one, I disagree. She's fine. It kind of looks somewhat funny, but most of all, Ferris Bueller is in it. <laughs> right, <laughs> of course. And as we talked about on our Ferris Ro- Bueller I, episode, I almost forgot Roderick was in. <laughs> the connective tissue is always yeah. happening in the episodes, but absolutely uh, because he's not in anything. 
Uh, right, right. It was nice to see that he was in this. Yeah, he's kind of like a, a yuppie hippie guy. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the it's a, it's a straight up R rated comedy. Which hopefully I was going in and saying, uh, hopefully this isn't pulling teeth, and it wasn't pulling teeth. It wasn't it wasn't outright bad. As you said though, Tom, there has been a growing dialogue online that these raunchy comedies are coming back. So my skin in the game, if you will, in seeing this uh, as a critic was let's get my opinion sorted out on, on this wave of comedies uh, so okay. that I kind of understand where I stand with these and uh, and how to view them uh, which comedy is always a challenge you know so subjective you know that's that's the the growing frontier that's the final frontier is uh, <laughs> that in silent movies how do I rate these movies yeah uh, director Gene won't bother with the last name like I said uh, comes from a longtime producer credit with The Office his first film, 2019. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. Producer, uh, but yeah, on yeah. set and everything. Okay. So definitely comedy background. His first film is 2019's Good Boys, the R-rated comedy around little boys skipping school. Uh, and clearly his interest in these kind of adult comedies continue here. So I, I really do wish him the best of luck. I honestly would have liked to cover Good Boys. So maybe that's a watch for future weeks because I thought that looked a little bit more funny than this. So Okay. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence is a hot surfer girl in a gentrified beach town going through a little bit of a quarter-life crisis. Uh, in desperation, she accepts a job to date a rich family's son who is a shut-in 19-year-old nerd before he sets out for college. The son is played by Andrew Barth Feldman, who is a relative newcomer to film but has has a sizable background in Broadway. And from here we see the age-old rom-com play out uh, with the washed-out consequence of the son finding out about the job predictably looming over the plot, uh, hitting right when you think in that end of the second act <laughs> to to create some drama and then, you know, that, that's how it goes. Uh, I'll say J-Law's comedy, not too bad, though I haven't really seen her in other performances like this. I would say probably the closest, I mean, Silver Linings. I was going to say Silver Linings. Yeah, maybe Don't Look Up, but she was kind of this like off-brand version of herself in that, or like alternate version. Honestly, her character is far from the worst thing here. She flirts a good line with hustling this family, which is fun, and still having heart. I would say if there's anything maybe absolving some of that criticism, Tom, of, um, you know, is this creepy? Is this a double standard type of thing? Right, the age thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it's it's in her character, actually, that uh, it proves otherwise. You know, that won't stop people from kind of not well, seeing the film and, and throwing an insult like that or, or criticism. Right, talking about should this film type of film be made, basically. Right. That's the big, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But I think it, it, it fixes itself or it's, um, it solves for it in the actual character work, which is good. She still has a lot of heart. This works uh, slightly similar to something like the ra- uh, you know in the raunchy comedy space that we've seen before. I personally thought of co- uh, comedies like Wedding Crashers or those other type of Judd Apatow films that hopefully we'll get to where the character is an asshole at first but then grows softer and softer as the, the movie goes on. Most importantly, this movie did seem a bit odd for uh, Jennifer Lawrence to take on this late in her career, but... 
I'll admit this, uh, it at least looks like she's having a lot of fun in the role. I think that's half of kind of what this is about. You know, if the actor doesn't look like they have energy, like they don't want to be there, if they're yeah. just getting a check, if it's going to show its face anywhere, oh. it's going to be in a comedy. Yeah. So She's not an old hag either. I mean, no. she's like 32. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, you think of like a Raji comedy like this early, Stepping Stones. I mean, she's like already... Like 23, 24-ish yeah, age. I, right, right. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> for the record, Jennifer Lawrence, I never called you an old hag. <laughs> uh, but uh, where the comedy doesn't work is in a lot uh, and I mean a lot uh, I would say probably a good 60% of the jokes are these millennial versus zoomer jokes um, which uh, oh, oh. I mean it's it's, it's, it's cookie cutter schlock yeah, is what that is exactly and it's, it's around this kind of quarter life crisis one of the more interesting things the film does is that this beach town that she lives in is a victim of this gentrification. She has these rich assholes everywhere around right, her, right. taking away her town. I wish more was done with that. No. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's character motivation for her, but it's never really playing into jokes, which I thought was a missed opportunity. Um, this character goes through a quarter-life crisis, and part of that is realizing she cannot hang out with kids anymore. So... All these Zoomer versus Millennial jokes, I mean, they are pretty much all the same setup and punchline for the whole film. And more importantly, I mean, it's going to be tough to get a laugh out of me, but there really wasn't getting laughs out of the theater ah, either okay. on this. I feel like um, when the more absurdist type of comedy came out, uh, you know, she does some sort of uh, front flip on her face or she kicks a girl sure. in the crotch, you know. Those are where the, the laughs came out from the theater on Was this. the comedy shared? Meaning, you know what I mean? Like, so percentage of laughs, did they mostly go to her or was it the supporting cast that was actually kind of picking up the slack in that department? I would say almost all J-Law. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That surprises me because I kind of look at the supporting cast and I would almost be like, oh, they would be great in this Mm. spot. They would be great in this spot. Or or, or, this would be a great moment for comedy or something like that, dealing with that person. And maybe the move for her career is a similar kind of Sandra Bullock vibe that, um, you know, equally she goes into these comedy, you know, Lost City D comes to mind. Right, but, right. No. I, <laughs> but, well, I'm just, I'm still, you know, it's like a 20 years age gap. Right. Let's not treat this as she's really moving transition. Right, this is a post-mortem Maybe for Jennifer Lawrence. to do a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it go. I'll leave it go. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I would say editing is the real black eye in the film. And, and folks, you know, I know this isn't going to matter too much to, you know, uh, to the average audience going to see this as a fun comedy but it really it was some bad editing uh there are near constant continuity ever errors with scenes that don't match up to the previous one prop placement is like super messy um hmm. a lot of these scenes look like they were rushed or just first takes uh which is i don't know uh disappointing in a comedic sense we also get some product placement around premium brands uh that it just sucked to see it's not as bad as like sonic or like an Adam Sandler movie at worst, or one of his heartless <laughs> Adam Sandler movies, we'll call it. But it was still annoying to me. I bring it up with kind of a, a grain of salt mentality with this, just because, I don't know, I mean, I think if you're really going in, you want to see Jennifer Lawrence in a funny role, you like this premise of kind of like dating outside of her age, not could probably bother you too much. Definitely bothered me on a production scale. Though. Okay. So, uh, and, and really, I suppose this isn't a bad movie. Uh, it's... 
all been there, done that, though. And no performances to really elevate it. You know, if these 2000-style R-rated uh, rom-coms are going to be coming back, I think there are two ways they could succeed. One, a platform for exceptionally funny talent, preferably new talent. Or two, the plot is new and refreshing, and uh, especially if that romance has to be thrown in there. This movie is neither of those things, and we'll see if any of the other ones coming out are going to hit those marks either. We're going to go ahead and give no hard Hard feelings, a fifty-two. No hard feelings. Ooh, wow. J-Law. Okay. <laughs> I guess it kind of surprised me. I thought this movie was actually going to be a bit more of a like an actual like actually funny. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's because it was it was being billed as more as an adult comedy. Sure. Obviously, it's rated R, but yeah. still, it just seemed like it was going to have a bit more of an edge. Yeah. Uh, Interesting, 52%. Okay, a little yeah. lackluster, a little lackluster. I, I think if I really just had to pin something down is that they just really leaned into these these um, generation jokes. Uh, which, Weird, because it's like it can just be rinse and repeat. Exactly, exactly. Where uh, at Not first... Not to mention, this was over... Yeah. Aren't we over that a little bit? Like, how <laughs> <Yeah>. many... <laughs> well, apparently not. I mean, Survivor did that as a season, <laughs> like, five years ago. Right. <laughs> I mean, that that was really the, as I was sitting through, I, I kind of just sat with the idea and, and definitely after in the note refining process of like, how is this different than a Wedding Crashers? You get asshole characters, find some heart, find love. I think it's just, I don't know, It's that's where it comes down to those two degrees. Is the plot different, new enough that mm-hmm. shakes things up? Or is the talent exceptional? And I i mean, I thought J-Law was good, but she just wasn't yeah. like, just exceptional like you find in those other comedies. Writing, that. too, I would add to that. I would, yeah. I would say acting, writing, and then what is our plot even? Sure. Because sure. with that rubric, that's a very big umbrella. If yeah. you're just saying, okay, asshole characters that kind of get better throughout the film, right. you can do a lot with that. Right. It's, a, it's a very large, like to high view. It's too much. Well, and actually, and I'll just kind of, I'll kind of just... With that point, uh-huh. it's another important aspect that, like, I love that we have the podcast along with sure. it. As just the, the, the website's a companion guide with this. They, mm-hmm. they work hand in hand where there's a lot more sometimes than just a number. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's nice that you can kind of go on, listen to the podcast because you can get the ideas there. If only for these 50s, which could be just such a... It's, well, why it's very it muddy. The, yeah, well, exactly. but, And I'm saying comedies in general. Yeah, because, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, talk about sometimes... A good movie is oftentimes a good movie yeah. when you're talking about 85s or above. Yeah, yeah. With comedy, boy, that that's talk about a range of hitting for different groups of people. In different I know, ways, so and, and that's what always always concerns me. And uh, I'll be honest, it's a big the, week for you. Yeah, it's, we're all over the map. I mean, you did adaptation. You know what I mean? You're doing a comedy. We're making you feel really uncomfortable this week. Yeah, until the franchises. Yeah, fifty two percent cruise for control. No hard feelings. So we're going to be going long a little bit, folks, because uh, let's move on to our next film. Yep. This is Wes Anderson's new release. But okay, first of all, Wes Anderson just announced his next movie already. No way. He is pumping (laughs) them out. Wow. This is Wes Anderson's new film. This is Asteroid City in theaters now. And Vin, let's get into it right away. We saw the film together. Uh, yep, yep. And the rule is, when we see a film together in theaters, I have to give it a Tommy Two Shoes. <laughs> <Is that true? laughs> so we have that to look forward to. Do you to. feel strongly enough about this film uh, that you like? Let's to- say if I saw it on my own. Sure, sure. I don't know. Maybe I um. 
Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Because honestly, I I just feel the same. I I thought this was 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 good, but um, I don't know if it was like wow, you know, Wes right. Anderson's on a, on a streak right here. Yeah, you know? folks, we purposely didn't really talk about it too much <laughs> right. because the big thing is just like save it for the show. Yeah, right. <laughs> save it for the show. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, this is the latest re- release from the King of Quirky uh, writer director Wes Anderson. Um, there's only about three films I haven't seen from him. The rest being. Rated on the website uh, or in the spreadsheets to be put up there. Uh, we specifically covered Fantastic Mr. Fox and the French Dispatch on previous podcast episodes. So, folks, if you're interested in actually listening to those, you can go ahead and try to seek those out. And I have to say, I mean, it, you know, Anderson's a super consistent director. Uh, I don't know if I've been more sensitive to these batting averages ever since the Inaritu, uh study. It's fun. It's, yeah. it's fun to kind of think about that. And, and maybe plays into, you know, the, the, the rankings of, you know, top directors and whatnot on the site. But, uh, nice know, sports reference, too, by the way. Very unlike <laughs> <the> you. Rare. <laughs> Hey, thanks. I try. I try. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, really nothing of his falls below 70 on the site. And I think that just mm. indicates that even if you don't love the style, his films are kind of inoffensive. Uh, and Oh, very uh, much so. Yeah. And, and for the most part, even if you don't like the quirkiness of it, it's still visually striking. You know, his his Always. style, his symmetry, his, his director hallmarks are so fine-tuned. So, And I will – yeah, and I'll just kind of also add a note in. It, it's so funny how similar his films are, but also yeah. can be so different. Yeah. How you can feel a certain way – with Isle of Dogs and a French Dispatch, mm. when you look at Grand Budapest, I mean, you loved Grand Budapest. Oh yeah, that's uh, his top for me, especially that year. Even that that was that was a big movie. Yeah, I mean, that might be the top top of his game, kind of. Sure. So it's just funny to get some guy where his style is so consistent, but mm-hmm. at the same time. Boy, are the movies kind of different in tone, or, or yeah. at least in manner, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's been a lot of commentary creeping up um, uh, online, kind of critiquing Wes Anderson as of late, as uh, his style is lazy or formulaic. Personally, I think as long as the core story is is different, and he's writing and directing all of these, you know, his his stylings can be the same. As long as the inside is different. So I was interested to see this to just put that to the test because there's a lot of dialogue of just like, all right, you know, when's Wes Anderson going to do something new? I think he does something new. It's just that the wrapping on the present is always the same. So, And to be honest with you, I don't know how much that would that bothers me. Sure. You think about something that's been, just been we talking about a lot is copycats lately. Yeah. And we talk about John Wick copycats. We talk about this. We'll probably be talking about action copycats more we get into Mission Impossible. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is just like, okay, so this guy who's super original is copycatting himself. <laughs> if a guy is going to be a guy, I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. My issue with other directors are trying to be mm. him. Mm-hmm. I like it when that we have directors that are so them that we can point to them. Mm-hmm. We can say, you know, this had a little bit of Tarantino to it. Yeah. You know, this had We're a little, about that with had, Yeah, this had a little bit of, um, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson. Now we yep. have a little bit of Wes Anderson. I like that we have these people that have such a name for themselves with the way they do things. Mm-hmm. That that's that's them. That's their identity. Absolutely. So if Wes is going to be Wes, I'm cool with that. Mm-hmm. The moment other people try to be Wes, that's when I have. That's what person. And that's just personally. Mm-hmm. I, that's when I start having having issues. Sure, with it. I love that. And, and more so than anything, I don't see other people trying to do it. No one has his no eye for detail. No one has the you know the the uh, attention span to make all the symmetry in the shots. Yeah. So. You know, any critics out there uh, of Wes Anderson, I, I, I'd i say, hey, find me someone else doing it to that labor of love that yeah, these films are. Absolutely. So, 
Um, I mean, as an unintended pairing with that adaptation, this film is pretty meta. Um, the story is about a production of a writer's story. Uh, the plot of the film is about a small town, a small arid town named Asteroid City, uh, with a massive cast of actors mirroring the real movie we see. Uh, but the story itself is a stage play uh, that we see through black and white letterboxed flashbacks around the production itself. Uh, the split focus allows us to understand actors behind the roles and see how performances are affecting them personally. Luckily, the story of a Asteroid City is equally interesting, but I, I'll be honest, it kind of is robbed of stakes a little bit once we're in Asteroid City uh, with how much is just uh, conveyed that it is just a stage play. You know, the stakes of the film itself, I feel, were not in when we were in Asteroid City. It was in the actor side of this. Hmm, okay. Uh, you agree with that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I guess I didn't quite put it into terms like that of where the stakes were. Mm -hmm. I felt like the entire movie had no stakes. Mm. And almost okay. not in a bad way. Sure. And I hate to say – I don't want to use this as an excuse. I feel like I might be saying it a lot in this review. Mm -hmm. But – in a very Wes Anderson way, <laughs> yeah. it had no stakes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because it could be so playful. Sure. You know what I mean? I mean, some, sometimes it's almost like you're watching toys and not people on mm, screen. Absolutely. When it comes to Wes Anderson's characters. <laughs> like, uh, some scenes specifically, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I think uh, a good understanding here is that there are all comedies at the heart. He dips into dramatic themes and maybe even heavy themes sometimes. Yeah. But. I, I will support that notion, though, just to not lose it, that mm. because they touch so much and make it so obvious that we're dealing with a Asteroid City as mm -hmm. a play and everything like that, I do agree that it maybe it, it strips it of... A, a meaningfulness or an importance, yeah. importance kind of, and, yeah. and does take it more when you were in that those black and whites when we're dealing with the actual stage play behind the scenes of the stage play. Mm -hmm. That that's where your real kind of content is. Yeah, uh, it's that's where the story for words, actually but is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just kind of tuned into this just because I preferred the Asteroid City aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think yeah. as also this was conveyed um, too clearly even in trailers uh, that there was this kind of split, uh, this split story going on. I think it was just all Asteroid City. Right. So. Uh, I'll be honest, I'll call the start of this film a little bit of a drag. Uh, is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I feel like <laughs> until I was really hooked, I was just kind of like, oh, all right. <laughs> this is kind of going yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Uh, but it, things do fall into pieces and grab your attention. Hopefully, I would say your buy-in, folks at home, for this film is the sheer amount of fun performances on screen and the, again, this relentless style of Wes keeping your attention while the pacing ramps up. And I think the, do, the pacing does get there eventually. It, it does clip along. It's also only an hour 45, so. Yep. When did you get hooked, can I say? Um, was, there actually, was there an actual scene, or you kind of slowly dipped yourself in the pool? I think as soon as all the science fair started uh, with the kids okay. in, in, in Asteroid City, uh, that, that's where I was engaged a little bit more. Uh, the setting is seems to be pulled from this mix of like a Roswell Area 51 inspiration mixed with kind of a nuke-testing empty waste right out of a Looney Tunes episode. There's even a Roadrunner in this and everything. I was all about this as a fan of... Uh, you know, this type of aesthetic from like Mars attacks and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I like that yeah, 50s yeah. UFO vibe. And I, I just got to say, I mean, the usual symmetry work that Anderson has is, you know, normally able to be seen, appreciated. I feel now it sticks out clearly for a lot more audiences to notice it in these 
bleak landscapes. You know, there's sure. literally nothing else going on in the yeah. frame besides the symmetry that he wants to get across. Very much a blank canvas yeah. for him to kind of play on. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, while his symmetry is probably Wes Anderson's hallmark, as we've said with previous directors, what their hallmarks are, I think it's it's easier to digest here because there's nothing going on in the background. Budapest Hotel, as much as I love it, it sometimes things get lost in it's how busy. much is going on. Yeah, it's busy. Yeah. I would say, uh, you know, a really huge highlight is the ensemble cast here. Uh, I think yeah. it's why you see it, you know, especially with how much it's played into the marketing. Um, and that's what you see. And that's very Wes Anderson. There's a huge ensemble cast. Yeah. People that make appearances. I mean, there there are major play, major actors that make appearances that are... Right. The smallest, the yeah. smallest of appearances. <laughs> like not even recognized by the film, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but huge cast. And everyone was, in my opinion, great. Yeah. Yeah. Shockingly, um, I mean, the kids were great. Yeah. The kid acting from teenagers to six, seven, eight year olds, mm-hmm. everyone was phenomenal in this. Yeah. Everyone took the directing and the writing of Wes Anderson and just performed exactly how probably he wanted them to. (laughs) You can imagine. (laughs) Right. Something that I really like too is that so many supporting characters and everything like that, but really the supporting characters that actually have some sort of importance somewhat in the role all got a little moment to shine, Mm -hmm. got a little bit of dialogue or a little bit of monologue they can go on. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool that everyone kind of took a turn at some point. And with the writing being so good, the unique style and just visually was super enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And it gave everybody a chance to shine in a good way. Even yeah. Tom Hanks. Like, I don't think there was anyone <laughs> who, I did, who was like, oh, they were not pulling their weight. Right. Didn't feel that at all. And I also was like, boy, no one's really – it's tough for me to say who was the worst three. Mm. You know what I mean? That's a good point. Yeah. Everyone was just very good. Yeah. And I, I think my, my thought is that they get grouped together in little clusters so that they mm-hmm. get the time to shine. I would say the, the comedy itself is uh, very reminiscent of 2012's Moonrise Kingdom, especially with how many young actors get the focus. For example, the teenagers are grouped together for visiting that science fair, and they have their all little story arcs as smart kids within Asteroid City. Uh, but what surprised me is a lot of the somber tones, uh, specifically Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson, having a lot of quiet sadness, uh, which uh, honestly was reminiscent of Anderson's even earlier works and a welcome return. Um, you look at things like Bottle Rocket, uh, Darjeeling Unlimited, you know, they're more kind of sad comedies where yeah. this captured a little bit of some of that in yes. these, in these and, clusters and, of stories. And definitely, as you said, comedies are very much a through line. Yeah. It never it never got so serious that it dragged you out of the comedy. Right. Something was always there to keep you with a bit of a smirk or keep it going. Yeah. It lighthearted a little bit. For sure. Yeah. For sure. It's uh, cute. How I mean, I, I don't want to just call the soundtrack cute, but I, I, I really did love the soundtrack for just how cute it was uh it's always playing in the background echoing these like late 50s cowboys tunes uh artists like tex ritter and tennessee ernie ford are just kind of like echoing endlessly in the desert uh (laughs) which i don't know i mean uh, i was on the fence for i was say i said to myself uh is this a really you know smart or creative use of a soundtrack it's just kind of playing the songs of that of that time, but I, I, I it got me. I, I I liked that it was just so much in the background that I don't know. I couldn't really critique it right. for not being more purposeful. It was mild but appropriate. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and and a, a very eclectic mix. I mean, he really pulls some deep cuts from these old like this weird like fifties yeah. you know cowboy tunes. So and, and and really a cute comedy is where I'm walking away with this one as a whole experience. I think critically speaking. 
Is this one of the weaker Anderson films he's put out? I don't know. Uh, like I mentioned in the summary, the stakes of the story are robbed a bit by seeing the behind-the-scenes productions, but by no means does this drop below that benchmark of quality, passion, and, I mean, relentless eye for detail that Wes Anderson is known for. We're going to go ahead and give Asteroid City a 71. Oh, wow, 71. Yeah. That's a good score. Absolutely. Yeah. And a solid movie. I thought maybe you were going to be in the 60s. I didn't quite know where you were going to be at with this one. Yeah. And we didn't talk about it much. Right, right. And it has, I don't know, it's, we didn't know. Even when we we first kind of were in the car, we both weren't like unbelievably super excited for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was a little rare. You think you would be excited for a Wes Anderson. Mm -hmm. But um, 71's a good score, man. Absolutely. And I think uh, that cute comedy, again, it, there's there's so many marks it just hits as a, as a quality. I can't really tear it down anymore. I mean, it just, it, it succeeds on a level, even if you may not just more so care for the flavor of his type yeah, of comedy. Yeah, it, it's funny how much that we can kind of, we agree in a lot of ways about the film for mm-hmm. sure. Because I just, I mean, it is, it's a very cute movie. I A lot of these characters just remind me of toys. It's honestly, <laughs> I was thinking, it was like halfway through the film and it's just like, oh, we're just watching Sometimes just toys on screen almost. (laughs) And it's a joy. Yeah. And the funny thing, how you said where that's all I can really say about it or that's all the bad stuff I can really say. Mm -hmm. My first notes were that nothing is outstandingly bad with the Mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. My biggest thing with Wes Anderson, which I'm not the biggest fan. I like French Dispatch, but really wasn't the biggest fan of French Dispatch. Okay. And the reason why I feel like his dialogue can get lost is his own sauce. Mm. I feel it's really compelling and you're paying attention to it and you're enjoying it mm-hmm. up until a certain point. Mm. And it reaches a cliff and then it just nosedives because it's just too much. Your eyes kind of glaze over with you it. You glaze over and then it's like, okay, is it important? Yeah. Is it meaningful? Or is it Wes Anderson just having some sort of complex randomness <laughs> yeah. in his dialogue? And that's because that's what he does. Right. I think that's a great note. With this film, I think it gets to the edge of that cliff, but doesn't mm-hmm. quite go over. Mm-hmm. And that's I, I like it. I think in that place, I'm liking this more than than French Dispatch, mm. <clears throat> even though it's a smaller movie for sure. Sure, sure. You know, just in scope and scale. Yep, yep. But overall, I mean, we talked about the acting already and the actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought everybody was hitting it. So it's it's. I don't want to go through it, but Tom Hanks was great. Everybody, <laughs> everyone was great in it. But man, ScarJo really enjoyed her on screen. Yep. I thought she played her character well. But I just want to give a shout out to Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. Not only have I not really ever liked Jason Schwartzman, this is by far the best thing I've ever seen him in. Wow. I don't know if I ever enjoyed him in much of anything else. Okay. And I think I can make a prediction saying I think this is the I think this is the most I will ever like Jason Schwartzman's ever oh, wow. in his career in the future. That's great. I thought he looked phenomenal. He delivered his lines in the best ways possible. Yep. I loved watching him on screen. I mean, Absolutely. really enjoyed his character. Again, talk about against all odds. Yeah, yeah. Against all odds. <laughs> against all One odds. thing I don't have, but yeah, I don't talk about Jason Schwartzman ever because there's nothing to talk about when it comes to Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> in this film, he deserves some praise in this That's one. That's great. Really, really enjoyed his character. Other than that, the colors are phenomenal as yeah. in pure Wes Anderson. The light pastels mixing with the very vibrant neon blues and oranges. Mm, uh, phenomenal against the desert. Really, really good. Really fun. I also thought the length was good. Because of Wes Anderson, his dialogue can go too long. I thought even Grand Budapest, a little long. I think even some mm. fat could be trimmed. French mm-hmm. Dispatch definitely felt that way. Yeah. Where his segments just kind of went too long. At an hour and 45, I think... It's long enough where you can kind of melt into the story a little bit and get into it, but also it's not overstaying its welcome. Absolutely. So I like that aspect because it's something I was nervous about. I think I asked you first thing you got in the car. I was just like, how long is this? And mm. you're like, why, why do you ask? And it's just yeah. like, I don't know. It's just, it's just something I hope it's not too long. Right, right. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Right. 
Uh, so that hook that you felt kind mm. of, that you started to get into it? Yeah, I, when was that for you? I was f- a bit of a slow beginning, but I think I felt the same way for most of the movie. Mm. And then I started to like it more and more. Something sure. about, I just maybe felt that I got it. I don't know. I have to say, something happened two-thirds in, just in my own brain and this feeling of it. Mm. This is an overwhelmingly, extremely American film. <laughs> This it is. And it's not even that it's we're very... set in the West or that there is a cowboy in it, although those are elements. Right, right. Something about it is very American. Each individual character or just, there's just – if you had to make a list and say, I'm going to take off this list and just put it in a movie of just like America, even nods or anything like that, characters or whatever uh-huh. it is, if, if, whether it's people or just ideas – so many of them, I think, are actually in this film. Yeah. I was actually trying to think, and I thought maybe rock and roll wasn't in there. Mm. Um, and maybe just like modern day more R&B stuff. Sure, that, sure. That's all just like music related. There's yeah. so many from celebrity to military to just mm. classic, like like the UFO stuff. The different parroting styles uh, of the kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, the nerds, the socialites, the elites. You know, Tom Hanks is, is a rich guy yeah. living on a golf course or whatever. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you have Big City a little bit. I mean, the Margot Robbie in it for not long at all. <laughs> right, seconds. I thought a beautiful scene, actually. Yeah. But a sense of our art and culture and just – I can really go on and on. I made a huge list because mm. I was kind of – it just felt very, very amazing. American, and I would put it as just in a very American film. Mm. I don't know if that was his intention or not, but I was coming sure. away dripping in that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I loved it, personally. Maybe Americana as a style. It's not really like patriotic, per se, but it's it's still Americana to yeah, it. Yeah, very much so, and so many different aspects. So, But overall, it was, it was a very cute story. Unique structuring, too. Mm. I love the breakdown of the acts. I just think as filmmaking, it was, it was nice mm. to see. And that's just Wes Anderson. Sometimes it's just nice to see a film like that. Yeah. So that being said, this gets two shoes, no laces. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and I don't, yeah, I don't know. Maybe with Wes Anderson, you would think he's a two shoe, one lace kind of guy. <laughs> he's a two- <laughs> I love, I, I love getting down in the nitty gritty <laughs> of the two shoes. But I think I might have been feeling the same way about you, where I can't say overwhelmingly bad stuff about it. Mm-hmm. I can't really give it all like an incredible amount of praise. Either. Sure, I think it's a two way street a little bit with this. A great little dip in another thought or imagination of Wes Anderson. Yeah, nice to be there for an hour and forty five. Mm-hmm. Probably won't return to it all too much in the future, yeah. like I would at Grand Budapest. Mm, very true. And I think that's what a two shoes represents. Mm, that's great. <laughs> It's so good. I love it. The grading criteria of Tommy Two Shoes. I think the array of films that we're going to have, that is the ones that we go together, right. it's going to be a great list. Oh, absolutely. Put some boots, Wes Anderson stuff. It's a big array that we'll get. Every James Bond. <laughs> uh, Vin, looking at these films or anything else in the future, anything you want to touch on or do you want to roll credits here? Uh, the only thing that I'll touch on is just, again, the shout-out of, of the franchise work. Just because, uh, folks at home, if, if you like following along with our list, if you're looking at the newsletter ahead of time to see what movies we're covering, which um, which I think is a good function of the newsletter, uh, I, I you know these franchise works, these are easy to, to follow along with. Yeah. Uh, next week is Indiana Jones, a perfect five spot. Week after that is Insidious, a perfect five spot, and uh, the Mission Possibles being after that, uh, being three and basically forward. If if you have interest in in watching them, if you want to read in, even write in ahead ahead of time, um, uh, Tom and Vin at the Daily Ratings, um, happy to get any sort of feedback and uh, and talk about what you guys think of. Uh, these big, big, uh, it's the summer franchise. It's like MI2, that poster just says summer. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't get too burned out. I like 
that we're doing franchises. I think we'll do these three, and then it'll be fun to just kind of tackle some uh, single yeah, stuff as well. Yeah. And July has like Oppenheimer and things like that. There's, oh, I can't there's... wait for July. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and that is Tom.Vin at the Daily Ratings. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, if you just want to shoot us an email. Okay, Vin, thank you so much. I, I, we're actually going to. I'm going to take a quick second if sure, I can. Sure, go for it. I have some stuff before oh. before the credits. I think we, we just have to start a new small segment of the podcast. <laughs> After every week, we send the podcast out. Yep. I realize I make some sort of audio mistake. I get something completely wrong. I have something <laughs> in my head, and then I say the exact opposite <laughs> to people. But uh, last week, we had talked about Snowpiercer oh, okay. and Chris Evans or Chris Evans. And, no, Chris Evans uh, is the guy in Snowpiercer. Yes, yes. Not... Who plays Thor? Why can't I? Oh, uh, Hemsworth. Boy. Oh, Hemsworth I see. You or mix- Hemsworth's Hemsworth brother has nothing <laughs> to do with Snowpiercer. That That's great. all Chris Evans. Right, right. And I also, uh, I'm going to go back of making fun of the of the Netflix movie Triple Frontier. Oh, really? We, because we were bashing. Oh, um, yeah. I turned it on to fall asleep to the other night. You loved it. Totally fell asleep, but okay. I lasted enough seconds to realize who composed it. Oh. So you're going to have to watch it, too, because it's a disaster piece. Oh, really? <laughs> Vince, modern day, up-and-comer, oh big composer. God. Anyway. No. <laughs> folks, Vince, thank you for watching these films. Thanks for stopping by. Folks at home, we'll run it down one more time here. We have Mission Impossible with a 44%. Mission Impossible 2 with a 60 Adaptation with an 85 No Hard Feelings with a 52 And finally, Asteroid City with a 71%. Folks, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week on the Daily Ratings Podcast. Hey, if you enjoyed the podcast, if you would, give us a good rating or tell a friend about us. If you're wondering if a film is worth a watch, or if you'd just like to see more movie ratings from Vince, be sure to stop by thedailyratings.com, where we have our ever-expanding catalog of films. Also, if you found value in the podcast or our website, become a producer and go to the Donations tab on thedailyratings.com. You can donate whatever amount of value you feel you see from us. We're looking to build this into something large and great, folks, but we also want to be independent from those corporate sponsors, so we greatly appreciate any support from you all. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast. Podcast.